welcome to the Content Design Podcast. My name's Vanessa Barlow. I'm a content designer and content strategist. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Owen Priestley. In his career as a content designer, he's worked as a technical writer. Um, He's also worked for the now legendary Citizens Advice. Um, And he's about to start a freelance contract with Google as a UX writer. And I was really keen to talk to him about some of the principles and techniques that he uses in content design, um, particularly uh, lean content design principles that he started to employ in some of his recent work. So I think hopefully you'll find um, this chat with him really helpful and find some techniques that you can put into your own content design practice. So Owen, thank you very much for coming and joining us today. Um, could you give us a little bit of a background around sort of how you got into the content side of things? Sure. Um, so I used to work in an Apple store, um, spent a lot of time explaining how Apple products worked to customers who'd never used them before. Um, and I was doing that whilst I was studying writing at university. So um, after university, I started looking for some way of combining those two things, that experience of like explaining technical concepts, but also using the tools I'd got at uni. Um, and I ended up being a technical writer at a software company. So it was kind of what I was doing at Apple, but in written form. So I was writing documentation, how-to guides, sort of scripting videos, that sort of thing. Um, then after about a year, got made redundant and saw a job at Citizens Advice as a content designer. So yeah, then I ended up being a content designer for about a year. Then I was a senior content designer, which is more of a project management sort of aspect to it. And now I'm going to be a UX writer. That's my next position. Nice. So I guess I've seen on um, Twitter and things at the moment, there's been quite a lot of chat around what people call themselves in this industry and whether you're a content designer or a content strategist and all of that side of things. You just listed um, technical writer, content designer, and then UX writer. How would you sort of see the three differing or do you feel like they're very much the same with just slightly different angles to them? Um, I think technical writing is a very old discipline. It's been around since products existed pretty much. Um, and it still is around, but it's more. that seems to be these days more about, well, I guess it's in the name, it's about technically documenting how something works. Whereas content design I see as a way of getting someone from A to B. And it doesn't have to be a technical process. For example, at Citizens Advice, it might be how to appeal a parking ticket, for example. Um, and then UX writing is in the position that I'll be in, anything that is sort of in the product. So a way of walking someone through that journey A to B, but using very small amounts of copy and interacting with design elements in a product rather than just a flat piece of copy. And you do do that kind of thing as a content designer, but um, that's my experience of those three terms. So Erin, could you tell me a little bit about some of the kind of processes and techniques that you found really useful when you've been delivering content? Um, Yeah, sure. So I guess it depends how au fait the audience is with the sort of best practices that content designers do um, but it's also a really young discipline it's only been around for like five years so there's no set in stone way of doing things um, one of the things I've been exploring is applying what's known as lean principles in design um, to content as a platform um, the guys at GDS have been doing something called hypothesis driven design which is also very similar 
but it's essentially applying a kind of scientific approach to solving problems with content. So traditionally, uh, in my previous role at Citizens Advice, we had a lot of time to do a discovery phase where we'd really explore a problem and validate a lot of the sort of assumptions we had in a big block of time at the start, and then we'd start writing content, which is quite an old-fashioned way of doing things. If you look at like software design, that's kind of like what they'd call a waterfall approach, and then you deliver it at the end, and then you test it. What we'd try to do with Lean is to start with assumptions and air all of the assumptions that we have about a problem, and then start to validate those alongside the writing and testing process. So you start writing things to assumptions, which are often grounded in research that you already have, looking at the data that you have, but then it may well turn out that that assumption becomes invalidated by some data that you find later on, and it just means that you can start writing and producing and testing things quicker than if you were to lay everything out and do a very slow sort of discovery process. If as part of that process, um, like you just said, something that you assumed would be useful or or valuable, um, then you find that actually that hypothesis was wrong. Is it that you kind of already started writing and that writing could be scrapped? Or so is it a kind of, I guess, as a process, you've got to be used to working fast and actually being happy to get rid of stuff and throw things away in the way that you were maybe a bit more precious about in previous ways of working? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it's more akin to the idea of sort of rapid prototyping and testing of things. Uh, If you look at, there's books written about lean UX as a design process, and that's all about really quick and dirty prototypes that help you validate assumptions that you have, and then you can quickly throw those out and build something else based on what you found from that first prototype. So it's quite different applying that to content. And a lot of the time it, it may be that the assumptions don't actually inform the way you write something but more why you're doing it Um, a good example of this is when I was working on a service that helped vulnerable people sign up for extra support from their energy supplier Um, one of the assumptions the team had was that older vulnerable people were unlikely to have an email address or if they did wouldn't check it that often that was based on our own experiences people we know things we've seen in previous jobs but it was also just an assumption that five people in a room had so we aired that assumption right at the start and followed it up with a hypothesis which is the next stage of the sort of lean design process and a hypothesis is designed to act on your assumption so in that example our assumption was most people over pension age won't have an email address So our hypothesis for that was, if this is true, then we should design a service that lets them receive validation through the post rather than via email. And then we set out to test that uh, assumption. And the way we did that was by looking at a bunch of cases that Citizens Advice had seen in person and filtered that down to people over pension age. And then of those people, we checked how many of them as a cross-section had email addresses and actually over 60% of people over pension age had an email address, which meant we'd invalidated our assumption and therefore we didn't necessarily need to design a service that added a postal option for confirmation. That's interesting. So does this lean content approach put you kind of working even closer with this sort of research, either, I guess, specialist researchers or just kind of a research-based discipline than maybe previously when you described the discovery work? 
Because I guess when you had that discovery approach, quite often it would be the research would go off and do their little bit of research. You'd do your sort of desktop forum, whatever it was type research, then you'd kind of meet back at key points. Whereas is it now with this lean approach, it's kind of integrated into every little step and you're looking to have, I guess, maybe much more regular and quick contact with the research side. Yeah, um, and from a research perspective... I think, yeah, you do definitely work closer with researchers. Um, and also, oftentimes, testing content isn't like testing something else because you can interpret content in lots of different ways. So naturally, testing a, a flat piece of content is quite difficult for user researchers, um, or at least the ones I've worked with. So by having these like written down and defined assumptions and hypotheses that you're working to, you have almost a checklist of things that you can test when you come to test the content. Um, again, going back to the sort of stages of Lean UX, the first one is assumption, the second one is to define a hypothesis, and the third one is to define a validation signal, which is something that you can measure which will either validate or invalidate that assumption that you had. So in the example that I used earlier about um, people over pension age, we had a validation signal that said if... 60% of people over pension age that we see have email addresses, then we'll know that we've invalidated our assumption. Okay, interesting. And have you found setting those kind of definite parameters like you just described, has that helped in terms of kind of getting stakeholder buy-in and kind of buy-in from the wider organisation? Have you noticed the difference there? I think that the approach means that what you're doing is better documented which means why you're doing it is better documented, which in turn, I think, gets more buy-in from those stakeholders who wouldn't necessarily understand your approach and why you need so much time and money to do something. Mm -hmm. So from that standpoint, I think it definitely helps, yeah. Okay, interesting. And have you found, I guess, in your experience of switching from one methodology to the other, have you kind of genuinely really noticed the difference in terms of speed and, and the quality of what you're delivering? Um. Yes, I'd say it's, as with any new thing, it's, it's slow initially because it's it's a way of working that I'd done previously in a software design environment rather than a content design environment. And so a lot of my colleagues hadn't really had exposure to that before and I was leading the team at this point. So initially it was hard to sort of implement it. But afterwards we saw a lot of concrete examples of where we would have gone off down a path that was you know totally based on our assumptions and that would have ended up wasting time because those are the kind of things that you find in testing later on that are totally broken and you have to go back and fix so by testing alongside designing content um you can definitely speed things up so i can imagine with the methodology you were describing if you have a particularly i guess weighty or just loud stakeholder that is you know they've got a bone and they're not dropping it that you could actually put it forward as a hypothesis and put what they're suggesting down as part of this process, even though you probably know full well you're likely to disprove their hypothesis. It gives you that kind of bit of evidence to turn it in the direction you want it to. And then given, I guess, how lean and quick it sounds like this process is, you've not lost too much time heading down what is likely a wrong path for the user. Yeah, I think that's a really good example of how it can be used for stakeholder buy-in um i worked with fact checkers quite a lot during this time um and they would often have something they thought needed including 
um, based on their own experience, which is essentially an assumption based on some anecdotal past thing they've worked on. Um, for example, X number of they might have seen X number of people who uh, had a very specific problem with a tax credits claim. Um, and if we'd have applied a sort of lean methodology to that, then we could have yeah written down their um, suggestion as an assumption and said, look, if this is what you think, we'll set out to test that. And then we'll be able to define a hypothesis, so what we would do if we found this was true. And then we'd write down a concrete validation signal. So if we see out of 100 cases of tax credits problems that, I don't know, 40% of people had this problem, then that would be enough evidence to actually include that in the content. So these lists can get quite long with these assumptions and hypotheses, but also it means that every everyone's on the same page, the researchers know what to test, the content designers know what to write, and you can add things and remove things every sprint as you work. So it's, yeah, so it's very dynamic and reactive in that sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it also helps with things like if you've got team members who join the team later on, then they can see exactly why you're doing it and what evidence you have to pro- uh, prove that. Um, and it helps as well if you've got a lot of disciplines in the team, um, depending on the project you're working on, to have everybody involved. So, for example, if you're building a tool, get the developers and the testers and the user researchers and the UX designers, get them all in the room because everyone's got different experience and everyone has a different take on the solution and what's technically possible and, you know, based on their experience. I can imagine it works both ways as well in that you might be thinking you're setting out to perhaps disprove a stakeholder's hypothesis and then actually it turns out that is validated by yeah information about the user and it really would be a good addition to the content and you keep it in and I guess therefore it's helping combat your own subjectivity and assumptions. Yeah there's tons of um, examples of that happening in my work where we've yeah heard from a subject matter expert about a problem they've seen and we've assumed that it's an edge case and then but because we've recorded it we're kind of then held to account and we have to go and validate or invalidate that um and yeah oftentimes it turns out that that we were wrong and that helps us learn um it also helps you find different ways of uh, learning about your users so giving yourself these concrete validation signals forces you to look in places you may not have looked for data so you might dig out old case studies to find things or you might look at old focus groups from external organizations it totally depends on the subject matter you're working with but in my experience I've found that I had a certain watering hole I was going to to get my data from it's a weird metaphor (laughs) and um, yeah it forced the team to look elsewhere at, at wider sort of data sources and rather than just your typical google trends semrush things like that we were looking in in other places and in terms of recording these hypothesis and things are you what sort of documentation are you using have you got any kind of particular software or whatever that's useful for it or is it just a simple excel spreadsheet somewhere um yeah so when we kicked off uh, our first project that we did this on um we had a big old meeting sort of two hours where we talked about the problem potential solutions and we aired all of our assumptions that we were um basing that on so it was kind of like you would have any kickoff meeting, but um, get everybody in the room, and then I drew three columns up on a whiteboard: assumption, hypothesis, validation signal. And as we discussed the problem and potential solutions and sort of roadblocks we might come into, we'd just note down anything that was based on an assumption, 
and listed them all out. And then once we'd got to the end of that, we'd start developing some hypotheses. So the team quickly understood the sort of way of thinking. It's slightly different from how you would normally have a more like holistic discussion around a problem and then come out with a couple of actions from the meeting. Um, It became more a game of pointing out when someone was suggesting something, what that was based on. And the team quickly shifted their way of thinking to sort of be very analytical and kind of take that more scientific approach. But at the end of that, yeah, we had three columns on the wall with post-it notes and then I went away and recorded those on Trello. But that's by no means the only way you could Definitive, do it. Definitive, yeah, yeah, way to do it. Because it's what I had. No, it's, it's really interesting. I think particularly because there is such a strong tie-in and overlap with content design and UX, it's really interesting hearing about how you can actually directly apply what yeah, traditionally is, is sort of as a UX principle and actually it works just as well through a content lens. Yeah, and I think in UX, it's often used very closely with the design process to figure out how you should design something. What I've found in content design, it does work in that sense, but obviously in terms of how you should design something, it's always going to look the same with flat content. So it's more about what you should and shouldn't include. But it also helps, yeah, as I said earlier, why you're doing something. Um, So And whether you should do it or not often whether you should include something or not include something the importance of having a project team retrospective as opposed to a wider team retrospective they're both valuable but I think that every two weeks having a retrospective meeting with your team where you discuss what went well what didn't go so well and ideas for improvement can really help um, yeah, improve your processes. That's the whole point of it. But I found that a lot of teams don't sort of stick to that and, and lose that kind of rhythm, and then they don't continuously improve. So that's one thing I found, being quite regiment with that. I also found that working with different disciplines, so um, content designers, user researchers, um, developers, those UX designers... Um, getting everybody to chip in with things like testing was really, really useful. So we had our front-end developer come and do some guerrilla testing with us in a um, shopping centre in East London, um, which is something that generally developers don't do, and it's quite a luxury to have the time to do that, but it really helped our front-end developers working with our UX designers to design a solution that works for our users because they saw firsthand you know, how they use it. That's interesting because, again, something that I've been seeing quite a lot in terms of yeah what people are saying about content design and presentations and on twitter and things is more and more this idea of collaboration i think i've even seen that kind of soundbite of content strategy is collaboration and actually so much of it is what you're able to do in terms of pulling teams together and um and i guess influencing the wider product how have you um i guess in your experience how have you found working across teams on content have you found them to be quite receptive or have you usually had to kind of battle to show the validity of content as a as its kind of own specialism um it's a good question so working with um ux designers and uh, user researchers is quite interesting because often the background that these people come from isn't necessarily content so when content designers meet UX designers, for example, sometimes the lines can get blurred between whose responsibility it is to do X. So, you know, 
let's say you're designing a piece of content and it's flat content, but it includes a table. That's technically kind of a design element, even though it is something that a content designer would just see as part of the content. So whose job is it to make sure that that table is user-friendly? Because in my head, there's just a way that a table should look, and I've learned that at school. But then when you look at software design and you, the way UX designers work, there's lots of different ways to present data. So you know, where does the responsibility lie for things like that? And then when you start designing tools and things, it becomes even more complicated because content design borrows elements of technical writing and journalism and UX design and all these different kinds of disciplines. So when that kind of Frankenstein discipline meets a UX designer who is purely about UX, it it can get a bit confusing. Do you find that confusion matters in the sense of as long as the content designer and UX designer can work together and collaborate towards a product? Or have you found that that maybe just leads to tension and that you do need to have those kind of discussions where you're sort of setting clearer boundaries i think that it comes back to the idea that content design is a very sort of young discipline um and it's not always clear what the responsibility is and it varies from organization to organization so as i mentioned um my next position i'll be in is ux writer and that'll involve working very closely with ux designers and that is splitting the discipline of ux between design elements and the content um so it's necessary for those two disciplines to work very very closely together but that is a dis- like a, a definition that's different from content design um so we may see i don't know content design as a discipline kind of fragment into these different sub genres i guess yeah there's something i'm interested in it's like you said it's a relatively new discipline and it keeps evolving particularly in terms of terminology and, and what we're calling the role in yeah, whether you or maybe your wider organisation recognises content design or particularly when you are working really close with UX designers or it's an organisation that often they'll be quite heavy in terms of they might have 10 UX designers and then they sort of start to think, oh, they need one content word person. And then sometimes the term content design can be quite weighted because that denotes design, which is the UX designer's um job and they can be much more comfortable with someone calling themselves a copywriter or content strategist or something and they can see where those lines are a bit clearer even though in practice you're going to be using a lot of the same methodology and things and if I guess like you're saying the direction could be that we end up sort of splitting the discipline even more into these different specialisms do you think I guess first part of the question be is that kind of helpful and, and positive and and I guess ultimately helping the user or are we in danger of maybe putting people into such kind of narrow routes that because they think of content design and all the things you could possibly cover and all the things that content can cover and actually if you end up being like I am the UX writer and that can only be microcopy and my nine to five is error messages and form labels are we starting to create a discipline where you go so narrow it's not actually going to be as satisfying um as it could be yeah that's an interesting idea um i think with ux writing i see it as one of the sort of purest forms of like content design because you have a very strict word count and you work with a lot of different disciplines and yeah the number of words you produce is very very small but they have a a very very big impact if you do it right um, but it, yeah, it could be that we end up pigeonholing lots of different people who could have very broad 
uh, range of skills that they don't get to use because they've been put into a certain box. Um, things like, so at Deliveroo, for example, I think they call it a content designer, um, which is essentially a UX writer in a lot of cases. They work on error messages and user flows. At somewhere like Citizens Advice, you have a content designer who works on long-form copy, but also occasionally on micro-copy and in tools and things like that. Um, and then you have a technical writer who may work across every aspect of the product. So when I was a technical writer, I worked on documentation, but also emails that we'd send out to users and micro-copy within the products and error messages and user flows. So yeah, I think it's a bit of a, a bit of a mess at the minute with all the different ways people are talking about it. And I don't know whose job it is to sort that out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have a consistent label. But then do we, yeah, do we even need one? And actually maybe, yeah. particularly with um, so many people in the discipline being freelance and contractors, maybe actually just pivoting to suit the nature of the company you're about to work for and if they use UX writer, if they use content strategist, whatever, you know, you can then just draw on that wide experience and wide skill set and be like, okay, actually, yeah, for this particular three-month contract or whatever the ux the microcopy that side of things is most relevant and then actually pivot again and next time it is much more content strategy in the sense of overarching end-to-end journey um cross device whatever kind of content that needs to needs to have that kind of very strategic position that's a bit more zoomed out and ultimately it's the same person who's kind of could could do both they're just kind of relabeling it and re um re-pitching it maybe yeah, I think, you know, if you talk to content designers, there's only a handful who would really identify as I am a content designer and that is a strict discipline that I am an expert in. Whereas I think most people that I know who do that job would consider themselves writers in whatever capacity they're currently working in. So yeah, content designer is one, technical writer is another, UX writer is another, but the common thing is that everybody's writing, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, so in terms of like yeah like you were saying looking for your next job there's so many different things you could search for that it becomes a bit confusing and I don't know how we combat that when I was a technical writer I didn't know what a content designer was I just happened to stumble across this position and it was a really good job for me Um, so yeah I guess I don't know what the answer is to that whether whether it's a problem to have all these different terms or not but it's definitely an ongoing discussion Mm mm-hmm and do you have any, um, thinking about some of the ways technologically we're heading in terms of the online experience, so the obvious ones are um, voice and VR and augmented reality and wearables and all of this side of things. Do you, I guess we've just been talking about kind of pivoting and adapting, do you foresee content design quite effortlessly adapting to all the that kind of new direction or do you feel like it will still be relatively pigeonholed in the sense of a kind of desktop mobile experience and we'll be sort of fighting our way into the the wearables design meeting or whatever it is um i think yeah it's going to be really interesting in the future with things like particularly with voice sort of technology um you know things like the alexa um Amazon Echo thing or like Siri and and all that kind of technology I was under the assumption that those products were driven by kind of um, an algorithm, an AI approach to it and we we wouldn't need a writer but actually there's a lot of linguists who are employed to work on those products and I know that for example at Google um, 
the UX writers write for the Google Home products. So they help write responses and, and inputs and outputs and things. So it's definitely, I mean, it's currently a very flexible discipline anyway, but I think it's set to get even more interesting in the next few years. Don't quote me on that, but... <laughs> yeah, we're quite exactly. A few years' time, we'll be like, oh, it, got, it got really boring, so yeah. we're going <laughs> to call you off on that one. So thank you again to Owen for coming onto the podcast and for sharing some of the techniques that he's found really useful in his content design practice. Owen is someone who's just started out on a freelance career, so I'm going to be talking to him later on in the series because he has some really good tips for putting together a portfolio and um, ideas for finding contracts and freelance work. So listen out for that. So until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.